Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, we'll talk about the market reaction to the latest sharp decline in inflation and what it might mean for interest rates as the U.S. Fed continues its battle to tame rising prices. Dick Beauvais will have analysis on the banking sector and on the capital markets and what he sees ahead for mergers and acquisitions. We look at the labour markets and layoffs and the risks of the much-talked-about recession. Dick Beauvais sounds a warning about demographic trends in the West, the collapse in birth rates, and what that means for national economies. Is America's status as a global superpower waning under the weight and influence of China, Russia and their allies? We look at the evidence. Matt Van Alstein will have the latest on the rise and fall and arrest of FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon co-founder and managing partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome back for episode 47. Inflation is trending lower, came in lower this morning. Uh, good news for the markets. The market loves it. Uh, basically, the, the numbers were, were phenomenal in a sense. You know, the uh, non-seasonally adjusted numbers, you know, showed uh, 7, 7.1% down from 7.7%. And that uh, made people very enthusiastic. But if you actu- actually looked at the seasonally adjusted numbers, they were up one tenth of one percent, and if you you know went into the uh, basic uh, categories, you know group by group, you know you could see that the food in the home and and uh, things that that were purchased in the home, those numbers were high, but everything else was very low. I mean, you know, housing, you know, was up, but that's a lag number. But uh, cars were down, you know, gasoline was down, uh, apparel was down, a whole bunch of uh, segments were down. And the areas that people were most concerned about, which was, you know, the service sector and the fact that there might be a big jump in wages that would cause the service sector to go up, they were in the 4 to 5% uh, range, not even the 7% range. So not only was this number a very good number, but if you go into the, you know, nuts and bolts of the number, it was even better than what was published. So uh, I, I would tend to think, you know, uh, that this, this, uh, if you will, direction of inflation is going to continue. Now, the reason why the market loves it is because the stated purpose of the Federal Reserve is to beat inflation. And the net result is if 
you know, the market believes that that's what the Federal Reserve is doing. The theory in, in the market at the moment is that the Federal Reserve is going to back off, that the Federal Reserve is not going to pursue, you know, the uh, program of driving, you know, interest rates to five, five and a quarter percent and stay at that level for 18 to 24 months. Now, I happen to think that the market's wrong on that particular part, but I do think that the Fed is going to slow down here a bit because these numbers were extraordinarily good. Yeah, so the rate came in at 7.1% annual gains and was the lowest in a year. It was below uh, expectations. Interesting to hear you say it's coming down in certain categories. The Walmart CEO also made that comment about a few days ago that prices on clothing, sports goods um, and other products were easing versus the overall CPI. So the overall trend is down. Yeah, it's down. And as I say, if you look at a wholesale, I mean, apparel, if we're talking about Walmart, apparel is down, eggs are down, you know, uh, you know, food that you buy in the store, you know, apparently is down, even though if you do it on a year over year basis, it looks like those numbers have jumped dramatically. Uh, they 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 are not jumping dramatically. Uh, and if you use the seasonally adjusted numbers, which nobody really does in, in this area, uh, if you use th those numbers, uh, it's, it's amazing how low the inflation number was today. Not only is it amazing what it is, the, the only number that was really up in any significant way, shape or form was the housing number, the owner's equivalent rent. And it accounted for dramatically almost all of the headline number of the cpi and as anyone who's like a market follower like we you know claim to be is knows that the owner's equivalent rent is a massively lagging indicator so what you're really seeing is inflation almost flat except for the the component of housing which is is pulling in you know and i think we talked about this earlier you know early in the year and maybe january february that that the owner's equivalent rent because of how it's calculated because of the giant increases um during the covid uh, lockdowns as we were opening up is going to be a lagging and persistent problem in the CPI number, even as actual other inflation is flatlining and people's budgets are getting a lot more handy um, or you know powerful. It's going to be there. And I've seen some numbers, and I've not done my own calculations, but I've seen some numbers as low as inflation, excluding OER, would be closer to you know one to two percent, um, all the other components combined. So. I think this is a phenomenal number, and I think it really should uh, move the needle at the Fed. That said, the Fed seems really committed to keep raising interest rates, so I, I don't think this is the pivot that everyone's looking for. But you know, this is what what green shoots look like. Yeah, I mean, two two thoughts. Number one uh, on housing: the National Association of Realtor puts out a number every month for what the price of existing homes are, and the median price of existing homes has now come down two two months in a row. It is actually dropped in, in absolute terms. So, you know, essentially that, you know, confirms, you know, what you're saying about housing, that it's a lagging indicator in, in, in that, in that sector. And again, the second point you, you mentioned, uh, the Fed, you know, is, is concerned about, we'll call it the Arthur Burns effect. You know, in, in, uh, 1970, when we hit the 1973-75, uh, if you will, uh, recession, which was a very, very st the stiffest one since the Depression, 
Arthur Burns backed off and and he uh, stopped maintaining uh, a tight monetary policy. And then uh, inflation took off like a rocket, you know, when that uh, recession ended. So, so the net effect is the Fed really keeps that in mind constantly and they don't want to back off too quickly, uh, worrying that if they do, then inflation will take off again and they won't be able to stop it uh, as easily. So I, I think the Fed will stay very tight, even though this was, as you've indicated, Matt, a really, really good number. And the market loves it. Are we in for a possible year-end market rally, Dick? I mean, well, there are having, people already talking about that. Yeah, well, it's happening right now. I mean, the market went up, although, you know, the market's only up 300 points right now, and it was up over 700 points before the market opened. Uh, but it was up, you know, over 500 points yesterday. Everybody seems to be really happy about what is likely to happen going forward. In other words, if if you take a listen, you know, the theory is that the fourth quarter GDP will be a good one, you know, something in the four, four and a half percent range. The uh, first quarter of, uh, you know, 2023 is no longer viewed as being a recessionary quarter. It's viewed as being another positive quarter. We just had this, we didn't, but there was a major conference uh, in New York uh, this, this past week in which something like 120 financial institutions spoke uh, and, you know, they were uniform in thinking that we will definitely have a recession in 2023, but they don't see it happening until the end of the second quarter or into the second half of next year. And in one case, you know, in, in the beginning of 2024. So the, the market thinks there's a chance to make money here prior to the onset of the recession. It doesn't believe that the recession is going to be terribly uh, difficult uh, and that when we get into 2024, you know, the economy will be percolating again. So, you know, I think your, your argument that we may have, or your suggestion that we might have a year in rally is a very good one. I think we might very clearly have one. One of, one of the things that always comes to my mind is that, you know, economists are fav- famous for predicting five of the last two recessions. It's it's a it's a common theme to have a negative bias because, you know, and especially the way you know economists have adopted the the weather the weatherman's approach, which is saying, "Oh, we see a thirty percent chance." So you're right either way, but but the reality is, if if Dick's right, and I'm not implying that it's his forecast, but if you're talking about a three or four percent GDP number for Q4, you have to remember what that means because the way the BLS calculate statistics is they're calculating that um as of in, inclusive of uh inflation of uh, the the actual cpi inflation calculation which includes what we discussed the lagging housing so for the broad majority of people who have um either own their home or have fixed rate mortgages the oer is actually not an economic impact to their wallet and and if you actually have 4% growth on top of, of 6% inflation, you're talking about a, a relatively gangbusters economy, except for, you know, the, the unfortunate people that are renewing their leases at 25% up or whatever. But the reality is for the vast majority of people on the ground, this sure is starting to look like it's a pretty, pretty healthy economy. Where does this put your thinking on interest rates, Dick? You've spoken about a 5% level um, coming out of the Fed 
and keeping them at that level for at least 18 months. Yeah, no, my, my view hasn't changed on that. I think that the Fed, as I said, is very conscious of what happened during the 1970s, is very conscious of the fact that if they ease off too soon, you know, uh, it's going to result in a big increase in inflation going forward. So I, I don't think they're going to back off at all. I think, uh, you know, they will stay where they are. Maybe they'll stretch out getting to the 5%, which in, in other words, instead of saying 50, 50, 25, it'll be 50, then maybe 25 uh, a, a break, and then another 25. But I think by the middle of next year, we'll be at 5%. And I do think that they'll keep it at 5% for, you know, an extended period, that being, uh, you know, 18 to 24 months. So uh, I think the economy is going to have to learn to live with higher rates and, and you know, basically, uh, liquidity, which which won't be as, as, as robust as it's been over the last decade. Uh, Dick, this has been just a terrible year, hor- and a horrendous year for capital markets. Not, not a lot of deal-making and some kind of a fiasco by some characterizations, but uh, you see the M&A market recovering. Well, generally speaking, um, you know, the, the, the M&A market, you know, you know, slows down when CEOs at at companies worry about what would happen if they made an acquisition and they ran into a recession. So if if we assume that the economy is getting a little bit of a lift here, I think that they are willing to step up because the cost of buying companies is a lot cheaper today than it had been. So, you know, when you take a look at overall investment banking, which I had an opportunity to do a couple of days ago. You know, you're seeing horrendous declines in terms of a year-over-year performance. You know, where you know, the equity offerings, for example, are down 81% year-over-year. Uh, you, you're seeing, you know, the high-yield market, you know, down in the 70% range. M&A is only down 25%. Uh, and M&A, you know, so, so it's 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 already reacting far better than the overall investment banking market. And I think when we get into uh, next year, th- there will be a significant uh, uptick. Apparently, the Raiders, are, uh, you know, not the football team, but the Raiders uh, are, are coming in here, and and they basically are seeing, you know, companies that they want to uh, take positions in, and then start to push management to do things a little bit more aggressively. Uh, there, there was a report on, on television, uh, you know, indicating that, uh, you know, the, these aggressive investments that like to take positions and push management uh, have increased dramatically, that it looks like there's a number of them pounding into these companies that have underperformed. Uh, so I, I, I think I think the M&A market will pick up and the M&A market will be reasonably good in 2023. And on the banking sector, you, you've noted, you know, interest rates are clearly rising. So banks, in your view, will be more profitable, will make more money. But I'm wondering how that squares with what you recently said, the banks are going to have to pay up more to ordinary consumers deposit and other products that they provide. You know, I'm, I'm not in the camp of saying that they're going to make more money because interest rates go up. I think that uh, increases in interest rates are problems for banks because it reduces their equity. It causes deposits to flee the banks, which is definitely happening right now. Both those things are happening. Equity in the banking industry is down. Uh, every week, uh, the Federal Reserve puts out a report called H- H.8, which takes a look at the status of the banking industry in the United States. 
So it, it is not in, incorrect to say that, you know, net worth is declining. It declines every week. Uh, in addition to which, deposits are leaving the banking system. They leave every week. In addition to which, loan volume is easing off. So, you know, the increase in interest rates is not a bonanza for banks. What is a bonanza for banks is if the economy picks up. Okay, so when you said we'll make more money, did you actually mean then create more money? Uh, maybe I mischaracterized what you were stating in one of your notes. Yeah, they, yeah, well, yeah they'll, they'll bring in more revenues, right? Mm -hmm. Mm. But then the question is, what is the bottom line? Is the bottom line uh, an accounting-adjusted uh, number called net profit? Or is the bottom line what you put into net worth? In my view, the bottom line is net worth. I mean, you know, if, if, you, if you're working at a job and you get paid a certain amount of money and you lay out, you know, a certain amount of expenses, but at the end of the day, you have less money in the bank, your bottom line did not go up. And that's the same as a company. And the bottom line of banks, which is their net worth, as, as I just indicated, is going down every week. Every week it goes down. So that's suggesting that there there is a problem here. And the problem, of course, is that they've got to readjust the value of their assets because interest rates lower the value of bank assets. And on the employment front, you think um, employment is likely to decline in the coming months with the unemployment rate eventually hitting 5%. Yeah, I think that uh, if we take a look at the um, productivity in, in companies, which unfortunately it's only produced once every quarter, uh, but the productivity uh, is clear. The productivity of, of workers has been coming down now for you know a year. In addition to which, um, you know, wages are going up. So if you're a business, you know, and you're getting less productivity from your employees because you decided to warehouse them, you know, because you thought you couldn't hire anybody, uh, and, and those people are costing you more and more money, you know, I think the logical thing you're going to do is you're going to reduce employment. Now, this, what they call JOLTS report, which is the number of jobs that are available in the economy at, at a given point in time. The JOLTS report has showed that, you know, there's there's been a half a million reduction in that number over the last six months. In addition to which, I've always believed, and we've discussed the labor in the past, but I've always believed that the labor report, uh, it, you know, that I believe mostly is the household report. And the reason why I like the household report instead of the establishment report is because the household report covers the whole population. In other words, if, if you ha own a small business, if you, uh, you know, work, uh, you know, from your home, but, but are not at, at a large company, uh, you know, you, you're being picked up by the household report. You're not being picked up by the establishment report. The household report is for the last couple of months have shown declines in the number of people who have jobs. So, or, or who are gainfully employed, I guess that's a better way to state it. So, yeah, no, I think that, uh, I think that employment is going to ease. I mean, I still believe that we will have that recession next year. I just think that, you know, we got a short spurt here in the economy, which is, which is going to be positive. I mean, let's, let's be honest. You don't, I, I agree that the productivity report comes out quarterly, but you don't have to wait for that report to come out to be able to, back of the envelope, figure out what it's going to say, because you can calculate it based on overall earnings from, you know, 
broadly speaking from you know the S&P 500 just take any broad index you can see earnings and revenues from the household survey and from the BLS statistics you can see um wages and you can see the number of people employed and when the when the wages are growing faster than revenues or profits or um hours worked is growing you know faster than than revenues then it's clear that productivity is going down um I think this is, you know, maybe this is me reading too much psychology into it, but I think a lot of this is, you know, in in prior recessions, right now we would be, and I'm not saying we're in a recession, but when you have the type of talk that we've had and the rhetoric we've had all year of a recession is coming, a recession is coming, you start seeing real businesses do mass layoffs as a way to get ready and get lean. And I think psychologically, owners are more in the mind of remembering how hard it was to get employees hired. And if you believe the rhetoric that it's going to be a short recession, there's no reason to do mass layoffs if you think you're going to be wanting to hire people again in seven or eight months after you're on the back end of it. And so I think what it becomes is a self-fulfilling prophecy in that perhaps we might not have a big recession or it'll be a softish landing in the sense that, you know, if we don't have a massive unemployment growth, then then the recession will stay at bay because of that. And, and the self-fulfilling prophecy of avoiding a recession becomes reality. Or at least that's the optimistic case. Yeah, that's interesting to hear you say that, Matt. And, and we've spoken about this concept of a job full recession um, potentially out there as well. I mean, it's difficult to hire workers or it was at the, you know, when things were picking up steadily. And there's not a lot of labor, uh, people entering the labor markets versus a generation or so ago. I think, what, 500,000 uh, new entrants into the labor markets every year versus two and a half million a generation or so ago. So the whole demographics, everything has changed. So it'd be very hard to maybe even spot that recession when it comes. It may be like no other recession we've ever had in our <clears throat> lifetime. Yeah, well, every every day, uh, some companies announcing layoffs, it would appear. Yesterday, Goldman Sachs indicated that they were going to lay off 400 people. Uh, you know, you have I, I I can't remember all the companies, but Amazon laying off people, yeah. Google laying uh-huh. off people. You know, you know, the, you know. We're not seeing we're not seeing uh, an easing of these announcements. Number one, number two. You know, the Jolts report is showing that there are few workers being demanded. You know, number three. Um, you know, the household numbers were down. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not I'm not willing to give up the re- recession call just yet, but. Uh, you know, I, d- I do understand that, you know, right now the economy is percolating pretty well. Just to that, housing is in a disaster. There's no hiring going on. Meta laid off people, Twitter, as all Silicon Valley, mass layoffs. You know, when you see housing down and autos down, historically, you, you, you couldn't you couldn't have a strong economy with both of those things in 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 reverse and unfortunately um or fortunately i should say you know they're not you know as powerful in driving the overall economy as they uh, were at one time but you know housing is down and, and autos are down yeah. and, and and you know employment and, and layoffs are up so um, again I, it's going to be a good quarter uh, but I, I'm not willing to walk away from the theory that we won't have a recession next year.
You're listening to Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group. Dick is Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon and Matt is Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Questions and comments, email podcast at odeoncap.com. That's podcast at odeoncap.com. Com. Uh, Dick, you've been doing research on um, just the whole geopolitical <clears throat> landscape worldwide. Um, you've been looking at the writings of, well, let's call him the emperor, uh, Xi Jinping, and just looking at where everything fits and falls uh, across the globe. And you, you have repeated again that the U.S. Um, as a superpower um, and as the dominant reserve currency, the dollar, all of that is now severely under threat. Um, and you've looked at China, you looked at what's going on in India, maybe Saudi Arabia, and you're quite perplexed, it sounds like. Yeah, well, I believe that um, the United States hegemony, uh, which had existed for, I don't know, maybe 100 years, uh, if we go back, in time uh, is is over. Uh, I, I think that um, you know we are now have a bifurcated world. In other words, in looking at uh, Russia's uh, incursion into Ukraine, um, I think that you know Putin can walk away. He doesn't need he doesn't need uh, someone to show him how to get out gracefully. All he has to do is say, "I'm walking away," because he did achieve. He may not have conquered Ukraine, but he did achieve his his larger goal. His larger goal was to create a second power block that could effectively compete against the United States, and and he's done it. I mean, basically, you now have uh, three of the most populous countries in the world, you know, that rely on Russia for their energy. I mean, China, India. And Turkey is the most populated, most populous country in Europe, if you consider them to be in Europe, although they obviously they have a little piece in Europe and a big piece in Asia. So all three of those countries, you know, are, are tied into, you know, Russia at the present time. You do have the Russian currency now being used among those countries in terms of, you know, moving uh, goods, you know, from one place to the other. You do have, uh, you know, China with, you know, this, this, you know, staggering number of countries around the world, if you believe, uh, you know, what is being published by Harvard and the Kiel Institute, which is something like 150 countries owe China money. You, you do have countries in every continent now that, that are tied into either Russia or China. I mean, if, if you look in Latin America, you know, there used to be something called the Monroe Doctrine, which basically said, you know, foreign countries better stay away from anything in, in, uh, in South America. Well, you know, Nicaragua now has Russian troops in the country at Nicaragua's request. You know, Cuba is is tied to Russia. Venezuela is tied to China and Russia. You know, Argentina, you know, owes China a huge amount of money. Brick, uh, Brazil is part of BRICS. You know, if, if you go to, you know, Africa, th there's a slew of countries in Africa that have huge debts outstanding to, uh, to China. If, if, if you go to Asia, 
you know, clearly, you know, the biggest, and I'm repeating this one, the biggest, most populous countries in the world are tied into this Eurasian situation. India, Pakistan is no longer, you know, uh, a friend of the United States. I mean, they, they've borrowed a huge amount of money from, from China. Uh, you, you, you got obviously China there, you got North Korea there. You know, the Philippines, you know, is, is on, on the, on the edge as to which way they want to go because we don't like the fact that it's a dictatorship and, uh, you know, they, they want to do more and more business with China. So, you know, the, the, the world has separated and, and we aren't ever going back to what it was. And the only way the United States can prevail in the world that now exists is it has to produce goods at a price that everybody in the world wants, and it has to produce them in this country. And therefore, that's how we got our dominance in the first place. That's what we've got to do to get our dominance going forward. No, I think I think it's a it's a it's a hugely different world. And this whole immigration thing is is a really big, big issue. And, and Matt's been all over the demographic issue for, for, for a while. But, you know, most of the industrialized countries in the West do not produce enough people to maintain their population. In other words, the um, in, in Europe, uh, according to the United Nations, the fertility rate per woman is 1.5. You need it to be 2.1 to to maintain your population. In the United States, it's 1.6. Uh, now China is 1.7, and Japan is 1.3. But the point is, if you, if you go to countries like you know, they the, the, they have a, this group of countries called the the, the ones that are debt stressed. The, the 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 fertility per woman is 4.5. If you look at Nigeria. The fertility per woman is 5.2. So, you know, what the issue here is that I'm getting at is that the people in those countries where there is too many, too many individuals and not enough economic success are going to move into those countries where there are too few people with with very strong economies so you know, we're going to be in turmoil for a long time i think as we resort out how this how this world is going to shape up going forward the the language that dick you use i, I feel like i take exception with the present tense of it which is the u.s is not a hegemon well from every statistic and every piece of data i see i think that that is actually incorrect i think we are a hegemon I, th I think the making the argument that um, Russia is a rising power is negated by all evidence. They're a shrinking power, and they've been shrinking, you know, going on 50 or 60 years, actually, as a shrinking power. Um, you know, their population is declining. Their population per GDP while growing is declining as a percent of the, the world. Um, China, you know, as much as they are a growing power, they're not growing population-wise anymore, and their GDP is is you know as all as suspect as it's always been. It's starting to look very stagnant, and and the idea that they can continue to grow and eventually get to U.S. the U.S. level on a per capita basis is really speculative because they're not anywhere close to us. They're they're close to the United States on a total GDP basis, but they have five times the population, and it's a shrinking population. Which, if you look at Japan. You know they've been able to keep their GDP relatively steady while they're 
um, population declines. But if that's what happened, if that's the roadmap for China, they'll never be able to put a navy out there that can patrol the high seas and protect shipping lanes and shipping channels and be influential, you know, tens of thousands of miles away from home the way the United States is. The United States controls the shipping lanes. They control, they, we control space. We control most of the satellites on, 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 uh, up in orbit. We control underwater. We have more submarines than the rest of the world combined. We have more aircraft carriers almost than the rest of the world combined. Um, so I, I just don't, I don't think the word hegemon doesn't apply to the U.S. as long as much as I agree with you, or if you if you take trend lines and put them out into the future, you know the the best days of hegemonic U.S. control are behind us. I don't think we're there yet, and I, I would go further on the idea that China has influence. I mean, at the end of the day, the question of what is a hegemon hegemon is has a, a technical definition, but there's also a soft de- definition, which is influence. And the only country that has the influence around the world to influence everyone is America. And China is right there because they have a lot of technology, they have a lot of exports. But the idea that people owe them money, okay, so so Sri Lanka owes them money. They they owe them the port. They have this this huge port, or Pakistan owes them money for ports and airports and railroads, you know, so on and so forth. But but at the end of the day, you have to you have to be able to collect that money. You have to do something about it if they choose not to pay or default. And part of that involves, you know, soft power, you know, negotiations, um, repayments of, of through, you know, a trade or a re re jiggering trade lines, or, you know, there's lots of ways to influence it. But at the end of the day, if, if someone owes you money and you're not able to collect it, there's not a court. You can go out there and make it happen. You have to do it because you have some, you have some, stick and carrot in the future to make it happen. And China, I agree, is by far the next closest to the United States to have those powers. But I don't I don't think it's anywhere close to being a bipolar world yet. The, you know, like you go back to to you know 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s, even early 90s, and you could look at the world between two maps, which is countries that kind of are aligned with the Soviet Union and countries that are kind of aligned with the United States. And there would be a clear distinction throughout the world. But right now, if you were to try to do that map of countries that are aligned with China versus countries that are aligned with the United States, that, that's a very small number that pick and choose because almost every country does business with both. And it's a capitalist business and it's a profit-oriented business. And you know, you listen to Xi Jinping and not get caught up in the hyperbole of, of defense contractors, but just listen to what he says. He wants to be a rich country. And the, the one consistency that you see from China in their UN votes is, is uh, they don't like foreign um, adventuring. They don't like countries that go out and, and get involved in other countries' business. They want their country to be left alone. And so excluding Taiwan from the equation, China doesn't seem to have international ambitions uh, beyond economics. So I, I agree with you. The world is complicated. I agree with you. The, the onshoring is best. I agree with you. It's a trend that's not going to change. And I agree with you. It's good for America to bring manufacturing back home. But but I think a lot of it is preemptive to avoid the type of world that you're describing in present tense. Well, you, you, you're certainly correct that, uh, you know, we haven't lost it, uh, you know, all. Uh, but, you know, just take a look at what we said about Latin America. There was no foreign country in Latin America. Um, think about the fact that Nigeria actually went to Russia and said, we want your troops to help us protect our border. First off, uh 
I think you skipped a part of your sentence when you said there there weren't Russian troops in Latin America, and I think well, you meant Nicaragua, not Nigeria. Nicar yeah, it's Nicaragua. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I apologize. It, it's Nicaragua, uh, and you know, Cuba was you know always uh, you know not not a, a good relationship with the United States. You know, even after 1898, but you know, it it is a Russian satellite. Uh, you know, and Venezuela was always a very pro U.S. if you will country. It, it's not any longer. Uh, it hasn't been for, you know, over a decade. So, you know, are you correct that, you know, states is still the most powerful nation in the world? Absolutely. Uh, are you correct that you know, United States' economy is still the dominant economy in the world? You're absolutely correct on that, too. However, you know, we do now have this Eurasian bloc, which is real and which is not pro-American, uh, which is growing and which is building its own financial strengths, which is building its own defense, you know, mil military strengths. I mean, you know, we may claim that we're keeping all the sea lanes open, but, you know, in the South China Sea, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're not doing what we, what we once had the ability to do. And, and China is very upset about it. And Xi Jinping is very clear. He does want to control the world. Uh, and he has said it over and over. And it's just that he doesn't want to do it in the Western formula. In other words, he, he may have these debts out to these countries, which are going to be tough to collect, but I don't think he wants to collect them. I think he wants a piece of each one of these countries. He may want, you know, all of the lithium in Bolivia. He may want, you know, the bulk of the oil in Ecuador. He may want a port in Djibouti. Picking up pieces of these countries, he doesn't have to own the country and own all the problems of dealing with running that country, which made the British Empire, uh, you know, a, a major money loser. But, but he, this has never been... This has not been the case for over a hundred years, and and it is now. And I think you know there's a lot of changes that that, that we're going to have to react to, and hopefully we'll do it by increasing our strengths here in the United States. You know, the China birth rate may be low, but the U.S. birth rate is lower. All right, it's it's Japan is lower than the U.S. and Europe is lower than the U.S. But China is still, you know, generating more, more children for a woman than than the U.S. is. So, I, 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 I'm not sure that last one is true. But I, I would point out, luckily, our our immigration problems are opposite. They they put up controls to keep capital and people in, and and we debate putting up controls to keep people out. Um, you know, because people want to come here. So I, I do think the tools that we have to stave off the the demographic problem are completely different i think their demographic problem is something that is not a, there's no obvious solution how they solve theirs whereas we have an obvious solution as much as our politicians are at disparate angles of how to approach it um I, the story you were telling us the other last week and I, I hope we get to talk about it about your your immigrant friend you know i have my own stories like that where people will move heaven and earth to walk across to just get here and then the opportunities are abundant. I can't imagine anyone going through those pains to get into China. I, I think, Dick, I, I, I kind of am sympathetic to a lot of what you're saying, Dick. And I, I think things have changed. And I agree with some of what you're saying also, Matt. Um, Xi Jinping is... Um, an unrepentant Marxist-Leninist in his rhetoric. I mean, he could be preaching to the choir. We don't know. But isn't an awful lot of this really about 
economic independence, which of course equates to political independence. Take, for example, the iPhone, which apparently is going to move a lot of its production to India. But if America wants to start producing the component parts of the iPhone, it's going to have to lower its wages in the United States. They, I mean, in, in um, iPhone city in China, it employs like something in the region of 200,000 workers run by Foxcom. And the average, the, the best, the peak wage there is like $5 an hour. So are American consumers prepared to pay more for their iPhone is one question that we have to raise. Do we have to give more incentives to manufacturers to bring back their production to the United States? We see some of that happening. Last week, Joe Biden said that manufacturing is back in America. I mean, I guess there's some some evidence of that, but um, a lot of it comes down to economics. We have to have a better political reality and uh, you know, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle and the consumers, we all have to work together to turn this whole ship around. Yeah, well, we, we do have to have incentives from government. You're exactly correct about that. But I think that, you know, the solution is not to cut wages. The solution is to shift manufacturing to technology, you know, to robotics, to, to use technology to replace uh, wage earners in, in these uh, different manufacturing facilities. And I think we are moving uh, very aggressively in that direction. Uh, you know, 3D printing, uh, you know, it is not off the ground at all. But, uh, you know, I have a friend that that's how he makes his living. He just does 3D printing all the time and nobody works for him. And he produces, you know, a whole bunch of uh, knickknacks which get sold in, you know, various, uh, you know, little uh kiosks or well kiosks and businesses around around the tampa area but i mean you know that in is a microcosm which you know deals with the macro macro uh, issue which is you you have to you have to be more innovative in the uh, manufacturing sector. And I really think that the United States is moving uh, rapidly in that direction. Uh, so I, I, and I don't think it means you have to cut everybody's wages to get there. Plus, I think in China, you, you do have to increase everybody's wages because, you know, uh, if, if you if you want to continue to uh, get productivity out of people in those countries, you, you're going to have to increase. And, and, you know, going back to this broader question, you know, you know, if the United States is going to lose power, will the other side win the battle or not? I'm convinced that they can't win the battle. They can't win the battle because corruption is is rife in their in their in their countries because uh you know they make top-down decisions um i mean i just mm -hmm. finished reading Correct. a book called Put putin's people uh and and it, it describes how putin you know gained control of, of of russia uh and and the way he did it was you know by taking control of industry by industry and then siphoning the profits of those industries to pay off his cronies who run those businesses, who run the military, who run the secret service. And, and the cash flow, for example, from the energy industry to Putin alone, presumably, if, if these figures are correct and they're two years old, he's worth $10 billion you know, just from the energy industry. And that's not counting what he's siphoning off from other industries. And that's happening to all oligarchs in, that, that are running Russia. Uh, so so the net effect is that's going to collapse. 
you look at Turkey. Turkey is, I would, you know, <laughs> I will make the prediction that a year from now, Erdogan is out of out of office. Turkey is is a total disaster area because, you know, they're using the same, if you will, economic system that the Weimar Germans did. They're printing money yeah. like crazy. Yeah. Inflation is 82% year over year in, in Turkey. Uh, you know, if you look at China, if Xi Jinping really wants to control every aspect of, of production in that country, it, it won't work because the, you, you get from the bottom up in, in a capitalist country, the ideas and the companies which drive the economy. You don't get them from the top down. But China wants to do it top down. Russia is is a, a kleptocracy. You know, Turkey is is using you know uh, you know a, a system which we know is is, is prone to you know, massive failure, political upset, and and it's going to happen there. So I think they will lose against what we do. But I think they're gaining a lot of power now before they before they lose. That is good news that we could make the iPhone in America and pay higher wages. Yeah, I, I support that fully. I don't want to see wages dropping. But one, there's a distinction here. But when Matt has repeatedly said that China has no global ambitions, it doesn't want to invade any other countries. We we don't really know. First of all, and but more importantly, the Chinese Communist Party took over China in 1949. That was a conquest. If there was a democratic vote in the morning, you would see things in in an entirely different light. Uh, and the only reason that they can have most of the Chinese comply is through oppression and a surveillance states and their social scores and all those dystopian things, which are absolutely dreadful. Yeah, well, I, I, Chiang Kai-shek was a monster. You know, Chiang Kai-shek was a monster. If he wasn't such a monster uh, and didn't have such a corrupt, uh, you know, militaristic, you know, control of China, the communists would never have gotten in power in 1949. He he was a disaster. And so, you know, I obviously there were more control. I apologize, Matt, but there, there were more control of, of uh, the country today because of the electronic uh, the surveillance that we have. But anybody who wants to take a, a look at the close history of China under Chiang Kai-shek know that he blew it. And he blew it because he was a totally corrupt monster. <laughs> Even yep. though, you know, we like to think of him as a great hero that went to Taiwan. He wasn't that. I mean, look, there's there's two ways to talk building off what John said and what you're you're saying, Dick, is there's two ways for a country to control its population, broadly speaking. One is oppression, you know, tight security controls, um, strict surveillance, you know, just just the type of regime that you would have called dictatorial and and not one that people grow up aspiring wanting to live in. And the other way is to get your people rich. And, you know, you look across the Middle East and you know, they kind of have balanced the totalitarian style with getting people rich. Um, and China for a long time looked like they were going to go the route of let's get people wealthy and, and happy. But I, I actually reject a couple of the things. Reject is the wrong word. I'm not trying to be caustic in any way, shape, or form, but disagree with the um, assertion that if there were a democratic election in China tomorrow that that a lot of these policies would just be immediately voted out. Like, yeah, like I, I, first off, I've been to China a number of number of times and 
each time you do get interactions with regular people and you do get to meet people and you get to see things and you know stuff that sticks with you like like I, I stayed at a hotel on Tiananmen Square and you you I woke up really early because of jet lag you know like three in the morning I just went and started taking a walk around and and as you get closer and closer to sunrise Tiananmen Square is packed with tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people that are there solely to watch the sun rise and hit the flag in Tiananmen Square and, and sing the national anthem and put their hand on their heart and, and praise their country. Like they are, they are truly a lot of people, you know, love their country. And then you come back to America and, you know, I'm not a resident of New York anymore, but you know, New York has taken from my perception, quite a left turn in, in mm. terms of being progress progress. Like, you know, there's homeless everywhere. The crime is in, insane. The subways are disgusting. The stores are closed. Like, and and you have an election, and everyone who's in charge not only gets reelected, they get reelected with pretty substantial numbers. And you know, so I, I don't know that your assertion from the outside looking in actually reflects um, how the people on the ground actually feel. I think that most Chinese, from my assessment, assessment, are pretty happy with their country and pretty happy, relatively happy with their leadership, um, and they like that. You know, like let's not forget a lot of the people who are my age, and I'm in my forties, either grew up with without houses and and on a farm and saw the transition, or their parents did, and and saw the transition from being basically a rural agrarian economy where the idea of owning a car and having indoor plumbing and having internet was fantastical. It'd be like living on the moon. And they've seen that transition to where it's pretty now rare to not have indoor plumbing, to not have, a, you know, still having a car is a luxury, but it's it's aspirational. It's within reach. Um, working a job where you get paid a paycheck and go to a factory and, and as much as we observe their working conditions and, and you know, kind of shake our heads and, and say like, oh, we wouldn't want to be there. They hear their stories of their grandparents working a farm, you know, slaving away on a farm only to send the food off to the city and then struggling to get their rations. Like you have to remember the Chinese people have experienced a lot of economic and societal progress in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years that America that would be foreign to us because America started the 1970s so far ahead of China. And now they're getting close to the, you know, the equivalent lifestyle. The other, the other thing I think I, I would disagree with is that I think um, uh, Erdogan of Turkey is actually a relatively popular leader within his country. And I think he sometimes does things, you know, like his hostility to, to Greece or his um, overemphasizing, you know, their, their influence, uh, you know, b- with the Kurds, you know, are some things, you know, they're just red meat for the populace. By and large, Erdogan has in some ways to their, his population restored the, the the legendary power of Constantinople, and and put Turkey back on the map. Like like Erdogan is welcomed at the White House and the Kremlin, and I think his people enjoy that he is in a position of of influence. And so I I don't I don't know that we necessarily see everything, you know, as it is on the ground from where we look. But you know, and I, I would also throw Hungary in there because because America seems to really want to trash that guy, but he kept, keeps getting reelected in elections that are judged by the UN to be fair in, in landslides. And so, you know, sometimes, sometimes the, the, the assessment of what people on the ground want, we don't necessarily have a good view of that said, going back to the idea that China, you know, has global ambitions. 
I would love to see where that is reflected because it sure seems to me that they spend their money on domestic spending to build up their population on housing. Um, and then when they spend money on military, it's largely oriented to internal protections and looking towards Taiwan. But I, I you know, it'd be amazing to see them, you know, go and patrol the Straits of Hormuz to protect their oil. I, I mean, how do how do you even get there from here? It'd be decades. They'd have to build a huge navy to get supply chains to be able to send ships eight thousand miles from home, and and have them pl- patrol seas over there. Like I, I, I don't see them competing with you. And why would they? At the at this point in time, they get the oil for free. They have shipping routes for free, and so they're the beneficiary of American taxpayers creating creating global trade. And and why ruin that? And why disrupt it to go in and have to do it themselves? They'd have to spend money and they might risk a conflict with the United States. So why don't they just reap the benefit of U.S. taxpayers creating a world by which they can export to the entire world and be everyone's friend? Yeah, but they, right. They, they buy, they're building aircraft carriers. They are building their Navy. They are building their submarines. They're in a race to uh, build more on atom- uh, nuclear bombs than, than we have. Uh, so they're doing all the things that you don't think that they want to do. They're doing them. Uh, in addition to which, they're creating islands in the South China Sea to expand their borders to keep people and then telling people that they can't come within the borders of these islands that they're building. They've actually gone to the extent of going off the shore of Taiwan and digging, uh, if you will, trenches that will will increase the will decrease the size of the island Taiwan, and they're taking oh, the, that yeah. dirt and put building islands, which they then put military bases on. They put a military base, as you know, in Africa. I don't see them wanting to put troops to conquer a country, and I don't. Th- I think that's so to speak, the old-fashioned way of doing it. I think they're too smart to do that. I think the way they're gaining control of countries around the world is with the Belt and Road concept, with uh, you know, lending the money, with then taking you know uh, natural resources or territory for the money that they loaned without... It's like a franchisor. A franchisor doesn't want to have to, you know hire the people, doesn't want to have to, you know, build a building, doesn't want to have to, you know, put all the things in place. They just want the profit off the situation. That's what I see China doing. China is, let's say, the franchisor of the world because that's what they're doing, you know, and that's what they're saying they want to do, right? Uh, See, this is, I I think what they're doing, and I agree that they, they are talking a game of international influence using their wallet. Um, but I think what they're really doing is they're just diversifying away from U.S. Treasuries. They they have a they have a trade surplus with the rest of the world, and their biggest trade surplus is with the United States. Mm-hmm. And they're getting U.S. dollars on a daily basis, yeah. probably upwards of a billion dollars a day. That that either you have to do something with, i i.e., invest in the United States, which is politically unpalatable, I think, to both countries. Um, buy U.S. treasuries, which is politically unpalatable to the Chinese and perhaps a bad investment, or use those dollars to spread influence around the world and get some diversification. I think that's what they're actually doing is is investing and building relationships to grow, you know, um, influence. But I, I'm I, I'm not sure I agree that there's a deviousness to it of I want to conquer the world, you know, like Pinky and the Brain always talked about. Well, you know, I'm very tempted 
to go over to Tiananmen Square and have go to that hotel you were at, Matt, did you see you looked at the sunrise? Did you join in the uh, chorus of singing that morning? <laughs> I, I, I don't know the words, but but, but, it, but it did it it did remind me of going to Washington D.C. and you know the the pride you get of looking at no, the, I, the White House. Well, I, well, one thing you, you hit on a raw nerve there, while there are a lot of really pro-Americans, and we don't want to get too carried away, but there's a lot of groups in America trying to tear down this country, trying to tear down our constitution, try to tear down our institutions, they're trying to corrupt the educational system, they're trying to destroy our big cities, they're trying to destroy free enterprise. And you have people like China and Russia looking at this and say, yeah, they're going to destroy themselves and we're going to take over. Yeah, but, yeah, but that last election I thought was a good one. Uh, and Jamie Dimon was, uh, you know, the CEO of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase was interviewed uh, on Sunday. And one of the comments that he made, which uh, really resonated, was that uh, in this past election, uh, none of the wingnuts were elected, uh, you know, from either party, right? That, uh, you know, that the, the central... Well... The, the central... <laughs> some of the wingnuts were elected. All right. But the point is that, um, you know, the, the central theme that came out of the election was that the uh, moderates are taking control of the government again. I, I think that that's the message that I got from that election. And and again, I love the fact that you've got a Democratic House and Republican House, uh, you know, to 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 contend with each other to improve the nation. Um, so I, I'm not so worried about, uh, you know, all of these negative elements, uh, you know, creeping up and, and grabbing the United States. Uh, I think our patriotism is as high as it is in China. Um, but I agree with Matt uh, in that I just don't think that there's a huge, uh, if you will, group of people in China who want to overthrow that government because it's, a you know, an autocracy. I think that if a government can provide uh, a place to live, uh, food, a job and, and recreation, that's all people care about. They don't give a damn what government is doing it as long as they get these things. If they can't get these things, then they're going to get very restless and they'll and they'll riot, etc. But in the case of Erdogan, uh, you, you know, he, he is very popular at the present time. But there's 82 percent inflation in the country and he's lowering interest rates. He's lowering yeah. interest rates when he's got 82 percent inflation. Now he's he's um, got this very close relationship w that he's building with with uh, you know Russia, but but the point is I don't see how anybody can maintain themselves in power because eighty two percent is going to get to be one hundred and sixty percent, and one hundred and sixty percent is going to be three hundred and twenty percent, and you know because you can't stop it once you you let it out of the box the way Turkey has. And I think that, you know, uh, people are going to simply get rid of them because they won't be able to withstand level of inflation. We're almost out of time, but we, we have some underground reporting about Cuba, Dick, and this is personal, close to your heart. And uh, I read your notes and I was just, my blew my mind. I thought things had kind of quieted down after the riots in Cuba about a year or so ago, but apparently there's a rest of population there and you've heard it, uh, have a first-hand account of what's going on in Cuba there in Florida. Yeah, well, my, you know, the, the CNA that takes care of my wife, uh, you know, is a Cuban and, and she, you know, 
illegally came into the country in in 20 uh in two in the year 2000 and then got citizenship you know had two children etc so they're all they're all american citizens at the present time but they have relatives in cuba so when she sends uh you know what she hears from cuba number one is there isn't enough food uh number one number two that even basic medicines are not available number three that there are riots in the country so she spends a good portion of her income you know sending money back to her relatives in cuba and she knows based upon what she sends and what they get that the, the government is taking about a third of what uh, the money is that she sends now she has a brother-in-law her husband's brother you know who was a cuban uh you know bureaucrat all right and there are riots occurring in the cities so you know he was given a, a, a plank or a stick with nails in it and screws in it and he was told to go out into the riots and and you know with other government workers and and beat beat the rioters with these with these sticks with the open nails on them so they're going to tear the flesh they're going to create wounds it's not simply with a stick he refused to do it so because he refused to do it he lost his job he lost his uh coupon book that gave him uh you know food and he then got involved in what is this business of ferrying people to the united states he flew to nicaragua which cuba has no problem with because they want people to get to the united states so they can send money back to cuba but then he had a walk take a you know a, a horse ride you know uh, go through uh you know jungles where apparently they were attacked by a puma uh he had to uh you know then get to mexico after going through uh well, Nicaragua to Honduras to Guatemala to Mexico and then in Mexico he had to hide out in what is a specific place uh when he was then ferried across the river um and he gets to the United States he looks for a cop gets himself arrested uh goes to a a, a detention center uh, he spends a day and a half there he's then you know sent to california to make sure that he's healthy and then you know in, in in literally four days he's here in tampa florida he has a job and he should have his social security card within within days uh, so th th what what you know struck me you know is that there is a business because they call them the coyotes the coyotes that took him from nicaragua to the united states they go back to Nicaragua, they get another group, and they take them to the United States. And, you know, just yesterday, coincidentally, NBC uh, Nightly News had a, a, a segment on the fact that something like a thousand people entered the United States illegally uh, yesterday. Uh, and the, the number of people entering the United States illegally is enormous. So the thing that, you know, that there, there are a whole bunch of things that come out of this, right? Number one, there is a business of taking people to the you know getting people into the United States and that business is moving hundreds of thousands of people into the United States that's at least what is being said in 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 the press so so the net effect is that's a business it's not going to go away number 2 is the fact that those countries that are are troubled in terms of their economies or their political system uh, are creating more and more if you will people who want to come to the united states number three if we do get a recession 
and unemployment does start to drop, and you've got these people coming into the United States illegally, and you have unemployment starting to rise in the United States, that's a tinderbox. And that tinderbox, when it is when it it flames, is going to be very very unpleasant, you know, in, within the United States. Uh, and the United States Congress refuses to deal with the whole issue of immigration. They just refuse to deal with it. So you know, th- th- there is there is a huge problem here, which you get to see wh- when you get to hear the story of just this one person. Yeah tried not to be a monster in Cuba and and got to the United States like that and got a social security card like that and a job like that. And if he wants it, a wife like that. So, uh, you know, I mean, one, one advantage your, your, your associate, or I don't know if he's your friend he has is he is coming from Cuba because Cuba is, if I'm not mistaken, one of maybe the only country in the, the South American, Latin American region where amnesty is assumed and granted because you're coming from, because of your Cubano, whereas other countries like Honduras and, and Panama or Peru, if you show up at the border, you get, you get treated differently than Cubans do. That said, I mean, first off the idea that there's a tinderbox, maybe I'm, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when, when Reagan did the amnesty the first time and, and it was, you know, one and done. And apparently that's kind of the way we're going to do it. And I think it's embarrassing that our Congress, as much as everyone sees the problem, can't do anything about it because of just wild incompetency and corruption, I guess. But but the truth of the matter is, is this is this is the free market. I mean, unfortunately, we have a, a porous border that allows the free market to work. And the reason people come here is both they're leaving whatever awfulness behind in their origin countries but they're coming here because there's an opportunity and 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 the opportunity is to make more money and to ship it back to your families or bring your family here or give your kids a better life or whatever but but it's it's a supply and demand driven opportunity and you know there's a lot of data that shows in in you know recessionary times going back you know 2001 uh, 2008 during the financial crisis during covid or at least the very beginnings of covid the immigrants all went home, not all, but I mean, broadly speaking, immigration stopped being a border problem and it started becoming a reverse border problem. And a lot of the the people, you know, there's articles in the paper about people sneaking back because what you want to do, apparently, if you're, you're not from a country that gets amnesty is you don't want to be caught in the system. You don't want to be caught caught at all if you can if you can stay under the radar. And so people were sneaking back across the border to go back home because the opportunities had dried up. Um, you know, dur- during the recession. So, you know, I, but I'm, I'm, it, to me, it's all economic driven, which is, you know, we, we can choose to have an immigration policy that recognizes the reality on the ground, which is people want to come here. And the reason they want to come here is because there's need for them. Businesses want to employ them. They need to employ them. Our system requires uh, all sorts of laborers at every level. And some of those laborers come from other countries. And it would be great if we had a government that got its act together to make it a, a more transparent and legal process. But that said, I think it's, I, I don't know that there's the tinderbox that, that Dick is, uh, is alluding to, because I think people, you know, the studies have shown that immigrants, even non-citizen immigrants are more um, patriotic to the United States than native born citizens. And so the, I, I, I think it's just part of our life. And I think it's going to be here for a long, long time. I don't think it's going away. I wish we had a government that, had leaders instead of uh, the 
the clowns we get, but um, it, it's a. I, I'm very empathetic, and I sit and think if I were in Cuba, I would probably find my way to Nicaragua so I could walk across the border too. Oh, the one the one other thing I want to mention was you know we talk about our border and like oh they have to swim across or they have to hire coyotes or they have to do this or that and the other to get here, but you if you research um, there's there's a show on PBS called Trafficked, and it's all about different trafficking operations throughout the world but one of them is obviously the people people trafficking into the united states and the 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 most dangerous part of their journey is not crossing the united states border by a long shot by the time they're crossing the united states border you know the the type of danger that, that they have to take to get you know from mexico into the united states is minimal compared to what it is when they cross the darien pass in panama or when they go through um uh rebel controlled zones in Honduras or Nicaragua, you know, where, where, you know, there's gangs roaming that looking for, you know, opportunities to rape and pillage, you know, you get to the border and all you have is a river and, and the worst thing that happens is if you get caught is you get processed um, and, you know, and fed and showered and, and, and provided healthcare and make sure that you're healthy. Like it, it is an interesting system that, you know, the, the, the point where peak, involvement from the united states would indicate that that's where you're at the greatest risk is actually probably one of the more safer parts of the journey yeah i, I actually, just want to yeah. follow up real quickly i know you want, to, you want to come in there dick um i don't believe dick you were saying i hope you weren't anyway that if there's a recession in america we're going to pin the blame on immigrants or scapegoat these immigrants i mean the country needs hardworking immigrants and as you say i can testify to that myself i'm a, an immigrant and i know a lot of people who've come to this country and they're very, very pro-American and their skills in labor or in professional services are dearly needed. Um, but I'm glad to hear that Cuban um, person you identified uh, has his job and is doing very well. Uh, I interviewed a, a political Cuban political refugee and journalist about a year ago, Gillette Fregali, she's founder of ADN Cuba. It's a terrific organization. I believe she's based out of Florida and it's doing, I just mentioned it because you brought up Cuba and it's doing a lot for these Cubans in America and back home. And she's disseminating all these messages. And a year ago, she was telling me that there was these riots on the street, there was food shortages. It was just absolutely diabolical what these people are leaving okay well we can open our borders and let everybody in from everywhere whenever they want to get here and in the group that uh, this gentleman was part of uh were you know criminals uh there was a member of the cuban secret service uh or we can establish a logical fashion of dealing or we can establish a, a logical fashion of dealing with these uh we're dealing with immigration so that we pick and choose who we want to come into the country. And it seems to me that's far preferable. Also, I am not aware of any time in American history when uh, immigration went negative. In other words, where because there was a recession, everybody picked up and went home, and therefore uh, immigration was, was negative for this country. So, you know, I, I just think that, you know, we have a system and by the way, you don't have to worry about these gangs because these gangs are making money off the immigrants. It costs this guy eleven grand to get here, eleven grand from his family to get here. And if if they only have 
four or five grand to pay, then they don't get to walk through countries. They're put in, in uh, big trucks and, and, and taken across there. But the whole point is that this is a money-making business. And if immigration to the United States should be a money-making business where we pay off gangs in, in countries where the gangs shouldn't exist in the first place, where we let, you know, criminals in without taking a look or caring about what, what their background is, you know, then, you know, we got it. That's what we have. That's what we have. That's apparently what we want because that's what we're allowing to occur. I, don't I, I will say that the, the cross border, the, the, the crossings at the borders is a total disaster. It, it is terrible, Dick, and it, it's just well, forget absolutely that. out of control. What Matt just said, you know, the, you know, the gangs, you don't have to worry about the gangs. These guys are eating pizza, you know, in, in this group. They're eating pizza because these cities have, uh, you know, different, uh, you know, stores in them, uh, and, and they're taking large groups of people through. If they stop taking the large groups of people through, the local economies suffer. The, the, the gangs suffer. Everybody suffers. But if you allow them to continue to take hundreds of thousands of people through Honduras and Guatemala and Mexico, you know, no one's going to attack them. Why should they attack them? They're, they're getting paid to let these people come through. They can't create a situation which is so negative that they're going to stop these people from coming through because they'll lose all this money. They can't do it. So, you know, we, we have allowed the creation of a people-moving business, which makes everybody profitable who's involved in the situation, paid for Americans to get their relatives to this country. And we think that that's... That's good. I don't think it's good. Well, I think, I, I, I think we need some reform of what's going on at the border. I mean, we're talking about labor shortages in America and you have these um, people from other countries crossing the border and, you know, being authorized and so on and so forth. But I, I don't know where the imagination is, why it's lacking in America. You, you have a ready made labor pool there. If some of them are qualified in sciences or in 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 vocational skills or in manufacturing set up big plants down near the border there and put them all to work and raise our productivity yeah, levels those are not the people who are walking across the border okay? I, I, the, the, the fact of the matter is you, well, you, we don't know getting well, if a guy's a scientist he's making a good amount of money and get on a plane and fly to the united states that's the point do you want immigration which is regulated which we select who we want to have here or do you want what we now have a business of people movement and we get whatever you know society whatever the whatever these countries want to want want to throw at us because i mean that's what we have we have a system which does not determine who should enter this country we take everything I, I think we're getting a little bit off of our topic of economics but i totally agree with both of you that we should have a system and at the end of the day, there's a lot of things in America where our systems are completely bass backwards and, and immigration seems to be clearly at the top of that list. Um, but th there's a lot of problems in America where, where, where the source of the problem is we don't have leaders and we don't have a Congress that cares to do anything about it. But I agree uh, you know, with you there. can I just touch on one more topic? Just real quick. I, I, if if I were to pull the 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 colleagues here at Odeon and 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 my friends and people I associate with, I think I was very alone 
from people I talked to and thinking that Sam Bankman Freed would be arrested. And it seemed to be that the consensus was because you have a democratic administration. And I think he was the largest donor to Joe Biden's campaign and Joe Biden's PAC. And then he's one of the biggest donors to Democrats in general. And you have a Democrat attorney general and you have Democrats running um, most district attorney offices and you have Democrats basically controlling the criminal justice system at this time and place. A lot of people seem to think that Sam Bankman Freed would would get away with it and this morning the indictment was unsealed he was arrested last night and it sure looks like my my back of the envelope calculation ignoring the life sentence charges that are against him is 165 years of just the charges they've un, unveiled and there's a lot more that are implied to be coming and it sure seems like he's not going to get away with it and um you know i i think that's a testament to the system working and I'm, I'm, so are you, are you look are we looking here matt at a bernie madoff style incarceration for life for sam is that what I, you're saying i think bernie madoff going into prison in your late 70s for life means a lot different than going into prison in your 20s but yep. yeah it sure looks like he's going to get a life sentence if he's convicted wow well we will look at that um great episode uh, dick and matt and we'll be back next week till then take care Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.